Good morning, church. So today is the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Elizabeth, will you turn the first one down just a little bit? Um, We have observed this month, uh, the first Sunday of the month, we talked about the Word of God. Second Sunday, we talked about prayer. Uh, Last week, we discussed racial reconciliation and the need for that in our culture and how the gospel comes to bear on that. And this week, we're going to talk the sanctity of human life and specifically abortion. Though uh, we understand sanctity, sanctity of life really applies to all that would be human. The sanctity of human life specifically applies to all that would be human. And, and we value humanity. We value individuals no matter where they are. So it applies to murder and suicide and capital punishment. It applies to, um, to autism. It applies to those who have lower mental capabilities. It applies to those who are uh, deformed physically, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, immigration altogether. It applies to war against hunger and disease and communism and racism and homelessness, but namely the most vulnerable of all, the unborn child. And so we can easily make it a political thing. We can quickly make it a political thing, but it's not for us political. It's first and foremost a gospel issue because if we believe God is who he says he is and he's done what he's done, he's made us in his image and he is reconciling us back to himself though we've run from him in our sin and he's done all of that through the sacrifice of his son, Christ on the cross. If we believe all of that, then we need to live like we believe him. And so when we talk about the sanctity of human life, we're going to talk about it in light of the gospel. When we talk about abortion, we need to talk about it in light of the gospel. But we also should be aware that it is a very sensitive issue. There are some people who who make this all about politics, and because of that, it's a very sensitive and intense thing. And there are some people that it's very personal. In fact, I'm I'm someone who this is very personal to. And so if, if that's you, we need to see the gospel also shines light in that darkness, and that there is hope in Christ, and there is freedom. And as Scott just prayed, there is this freedom to repent and turn from wrongdoing and turn to a Savior who has grace to cover all of this. And so we're going to talk about some things today that are, it's going to be, I'm going to be as straightforward as I can be, but also want to be gracious and I want to have a humble heart in this because we're equals here. So whether you committed abortion and you're guilty of it in that way, or you're indifferent and apathetic and don't think much of it and you're guilty in that way. We're together in need of grace. And so I hope that you can hear this grace found in the gospel when we talk about this today. Alright, so the sanctity of human life is not something that you likely think about all the time when you wake up, when you breathe, when you drink things that taste good. I was going to say coffee, but I reference coffee too much. I think not want you to think I worship it. I like coffee a lot, actually. But when you eat good food, when you enjoy sports or reading or philosophy or whatever it is you enjoy, you may not think, I can enjoy this because I'm a human and God gave me the ability to enjoy it. You probably don't think that. You probably don't think of how valuable everyone around you is as much as you think about yourself. And that's true of me as well. So we need to pause every once in a while to really think about it. And you, you also probably don't think about abortion every day. 
And you, even if you do, you may not think of it as murder. And if you did, it would be overwhelming. If we really stopped every day and considered how devastating abortion really is, not just to the child who's having his life taken, but to the individual doing it, the damage that can be done down the road emotionally, dealing with it psychologically. There's a lot of toll that this thing, abortion, takes on us. And we talk about it like it's just a medical procedure, or like it's something that we have to decide, am I a Democrat or Republican on? And it's, we talk about it like it's not that big of a deal, but when we pause and we really think about it, it carries some weight with it. And I think we need to stop on a day like today where we observe the sanctity of human life and really talk about it. So we're going to do that. But it's not necessary to think about it always. It's necessary to value people always. I read an article, or actually I didn't read it, I just skimmed it because it had an interesting title. It's true. But it was in essence saying, it was Russell Moore, if you know who that is, it was saying, He hopes for a day when sanctity of human life observance is no more. He hopes for a day that we don't have to have today. He says, in the article, he says, Christmas is necessary always. Easter is necessary always. We need to worship Jesus for coming and for dying. But he hopes that the sanctity of human life day would be as necessary as the realization of gravity day. That we would just know. It would just be. It would always be. And that's my hope as well. But until that day, it may not be until the Lord returns, we observe it. So we're going to engage the culture on this topic. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means at the end of this. For a a major chunk of this, it's not going to be a sermon as much as it is a breakout session at a conference where you talk about sanctity of human life. I don't like that personally, but I really feel this is where we need to be. We need to walk through some detailed things, looking at scientifically philosophically or logically, and then looking at it biblically. And so we're going to spend some time doing that. I'm going to read a, um, a, a post. It really wasn't a post, but I'm going to read something from the ERLC, the Ethics and Religion, a Religious Liberty Commission, which is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, they released this uh, just to describe, in case you don't know what Sanctity of Life Day is, just to describe why we're doing what we're doing. So it says... The Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is a day we mourn the innocent lives taken since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion. And that was 44 years ago, if you don't know, 1973. We believe every life has intrinsic value and worth. The Christian gospel reminds us that every human being was created in the image of God, while most of creation was spoken into existence by a powerful and creative God, humans, Moses writes in Genesis, were sculpted by the hand of a loving creator and endowed with the breath of life. Since sin entered the world, people have been devising new ways to turn against one another and do violence to the dignity of their fellow image bearer. In our generation, this assault is pronounced specifically in the wanton disregard of hundreds of thousands of unborn lives every year. And that's just in America, and really it's nearer to a million. Our views of human dignity not only show up at election time, this resource, sorry, lost my spot. They show up in the ways we treat our fellow human being. Do we use our voices and resources to speak up for those who have no voice? 
Today, let's pause and consider what the gospel tells us about human dignity. Let's look to Christ, who is the perfect image of God, not only as our example, but as the perfect God-man who defeated the curse of sin and death that often moves us towards violence. His bodily resurrection gives dignity to our fragile frame and offers the hope that we too will rise, body and soul, one day in glory. So we are to engage the culture on this topic in light of the gospel. If we believe it, we've been changed by it, then we engage. And engaging the culture doesn't mean we demand they they think what what we think, they feel what we feel. It doesn't mean that we allow them to do whatever they want and we'll just keep our beliefs to ourselves. It means we believe something that's changed us, namely, who is our God? What has he done? Who are we and what do we do? We answer those questions in light of the gospel and then we engage because we believe the gospel doesn't just change the individual, but it changes everything. We believe God is reconciling the world back to himself and he will restore all things. And if we believe that, then we can see he's using us, his church, his hands and feet, the body of Christ to be about that restoration of all things. Only it's not going to happen if we're bigots. It's not going to happen if we're demanding people follow what we believe is true. It's going to happen the way we saw it happen with Christ when he engaged the culture with compassion and with humility as a servant. Because he knew the truth. He was the truth. And he took the truth to the people. Why do we care about abortion? Because it's killing people? Because it's killing babies? And because it's destroying lives and families? And and we think, they think, it's... Because it's convenient and it's what we need and it's, it makes most sense in the moment. And so they follow through. And, and honestly, there's corporations benefiting on this. There's corporations benefiting financially through scientific experiment. And so it does them well to endorse it. It does them well to advertise it, to, to manipulate. And things like Planned Parenthood was founded by a woman who was outspoken about her racism. She believed certain people shouldn't exist. And so she wanted to eliminate those people from the world. Rather than doing it when they're on this side of the womb, she decided to attack them in the womb. And this is fact. You can look this up anywhere. An organization that, that spearheads the abortion movement was founded to get rid of people who, who she felt like, who they felt like, didn't deserve life. And as the Crossing Church, we are unwavering in our conviction that abortion in every way, in every scenario, is against the will of God because it destroys image bearers. And we don't blame liberals. We don't, we don't blame the uninformed, impoverished, endangered woman who makes that choice. We blame the only thing that makes sense. Sin that has fractured the world since the Garden of Eden. Sin has broken everything and has led us to be selfish in every way. And the only freedom from that is in Christ. Yet even, even at the moment of salvation, we still struggle with this sin until the day we're free from it altogether with Him in eternity. And in this struggle, in this fight, abortion continues. And in this fight, our indifference towards abortion continues. But abortion is a sin problem. Yet 78% of Americans polled in 2016 say that abortion should be legal, at least in part. And 41% say it should be legal always, or at least in most scenarios. 
So a large amount of the American population think that abortion, the destruction of an image bearer, that murder, should be legal. So there's a problem there. Not, not saying that those people and their opinions are a problem. Saying that somehow we're in this fog. We're, in, we're captivated by sin in such a way that it seems okay to say that murder is acceptable. Yet scientifically, philosophically, biblically, we see abortion as it is. And I'm going to say it clearly as, it, clearly as I can. Abortion is murder. It is murder. We know it's murder. Even the doctors doing it know it's murder. Even the politicians endorsing it, saying we should allow it. We should allow the woman the rights over her own body. They, they, they're standing for the rights of this woman and they neglect to stand for the rights of this human being in the womb. We won't call it murder, but it is murder. And we know it is. And so we've reached a point where we're, just, we're truly just making a decision. Are we okay with murder or are we not? So science has advanced enough. I'm going to read some statistics. I'm going to read some different things uh, throughout this. I'll make these available on Facebook or on the city if, you want, if you're interested in that sort of thing. For now, you're just going to have to trust me. Uh, Science has, has gotten to a point, technology has advanced to a point where we are able to see you in the womb and we can do it through ultrasound, we can do it three-dimensionally, we can have great photographs of babies in the womb and we've advanced enough to pick up on things that are happening. So as early as five weeks of gestation, as early as five weeks in the womb, we can detect a heartbeat. So that's blood pumping through veins. Uh, that's DNA that doesn't belong to the mother. It's unique. It's its own human being. And, as, and then as early as eight weeks, we can pick up on things like all organs being formed, the liver functioning, the kidneys learning to flush fluids, sucking of a thumb, and, and, and doing tests to withdraw blood and things like that. We've seen that the prick of a, a needle causes the baby to recoil in pain at eight weeks. They feel it. They know pain. The brain's functioning. It's a human in every way. Yet, more than a third of abortions happen after this. So science has reached a point where scientists, doctors, have to just admit, this is a human. It's not just a clump of cells. It's a human being. Yet still... They would push for abortions if that's needed. And if you don't know Roe versus Wade, what actually was decided in 1973 was that it's okay for a mother to decide to, deter, to end a pregnancy if it is against the health of the child or against the health of the mother. Only it's been loosely defined that health is not just physical, but, but spiritual, emotional, psychological. So if there's any indication of stress... For example, I don't want this baby. It's going to ruin my life. Any indication of stress, then that's against the health of the mother, and she has rights to, deter- to end the pregnancy. It's also a part of the rights of the doctor to, in many states, to decline that, but then there's other options, so she can just go somewhere else. And it's also the, the doctor's decision uh, in, in the case of uh, pregnancy that's reached full term and complications occur to consult with the mother whether or not to abort the pregnancy. So in many cases it can happen much later. Most states, no later than 
what we would say is full term, so the third trimester. Uh, however, <clears throat> there are exceptions to this in different medical reasons that would still happen. Uh, but we don't need to know that anymore because we've determined early, early on, first trimester, that this is a human being, and science has proven it. So abortion is the taking of a life of a human being for whatever reason they deem necessary. Uh, and Planned Parenthood, on their website, you can look this up on there, they offer uh, consolation to mothers seeking abortion. Uh, they recommend, it's called Planned Parenthood because they recommend uh, abortion, adoption, or parenting. They're going to teach you, they're going to help you with these things. That's their platform. I want to be as fair as I can be to them. However, there's no mistaking that abortion is their main thrust. It's what they want to see happen for the sake of the mother, if that's what the mother wants. And they want to fight for those rights, and they're going to do everything they can. There's been a lot that came out over the last couple of years about some secret things going on, some illegal activity going on. You can research that, uh, of them harvesting organs and tissue from these aborted babies to for scientific experiment, um, which is a problem because it's worth financial gain, also scientific advancing, which is more financial gain, and when money's a motivator, some evil things can happen. So it's likely, I won't even say definitively, though it's likely definitive, it's likely that they would encourage abortions for that purpose. And on their website, things like abortion is very common. In fact, three out of ten women in the U.S. have an abortion by the time they're 45 years old. This is a fact. This is true. They're not saying anything that's not true. However, they're saying it in a way that would comfort you. Abortion is very common. It's okay. You can do this. In fact, three out of ten, is, it's a crazy number. In the Bible Belt, it's, it's not so much. In the South, because there are more conservatives here, and it's less likely. But when you take all of America into account, three out of ten, which is virtually one out of three, it's virtually a, a one out of three, is ridiculous. One out of three women you meet by the age of 45 have had an abortion. And that should be a fact that weighs heavy on us. And, and I don't want to get morbid here, but we may have already crossed that. They're on the website. They, with very soft language, lay out the, the two types of in-clinic abortions they perform. And I just want, I want to make as clear as possible. I think it's necessary. Let me say before I read this. I think the reason I think all of this is necessary. I said that it's going to be more like a, a breakout session at a conference than a sermon at the, at the beginning of this. The reason I think it's necessary is because in conversations I have with people, it amazes me how indifferent we are towards abortion. Because, because it's heavy to me. In fact, knowing I was going to be doing this for over a month, two months now, this, I've been thinking about this sermon. I've had sermons between. I've been thinking about this sermon because I, I don't want to like lose my mind up here trying to talk about something that should be so obvious. And so I'm, I'm going into detail with science and with, with what's just plain on the internet, what's facts about what this, all of this is, because I really want it to be obvious. And it amazes me that it's not. So I think it's necessary to bring us close to this subject and then to bring us back to the gospel. So I'm going to read how they describe their procedures. In-clinic abortion works by using suction to take a pregnancy out of your uterus. And yes, that is weird to take a pregnancy out of your uterus, as vague as you can be. 
There are a couple kinds of in-clinic abortion procedures. Your doctor or nurses will know which type is right for you, depending on how far you are in your pregnancy. Suction abortion, also called vacuum aspiration, is the most common type of in-clinic abortion. It uses gentle sucking to empty your uterus. It's usually used until about 14 to 16 weeks after your last period. Dilation and evacuation, also known as DNE, is another kind of in-clinic abortion procedure. It, it uses suction and medical tools to empty your uterus. You can get a DNE later in pregnancy than aspiration abortion, usually if it has been 16 weeks or longer since your last period. So, again, it's worded on Planned Parenthood in a way that would not sound shocking. That's to clarify, though, the language has been softened to clarify. So procedure one, the baby is vacuumed out. This fragile, defenseless human being is vacuumed away from its mother, its source of life, because it's vulnerable and unable to survive without her. He or she is vacuumed out, and the tissue is discarded. Or, as we know, as Planned Parenthood has been saved, stolen, and used elsewhere. Procedure two, the baby is too far along, too developed to simply vacuum out, so they use medical tools to cut the baby into pieces and then vacuum it out. So as straightforward, I'm not, I'm not just trying to stir up your emotions about this. I just want to be straightforward. This is what's going on. And it's going on by the thousands every day. Human beings by the thousands every day. Just in America. So, we can say it's just science, it's just a medical procedure, and we can dis distance ourselves from it. But there's a reason that even these medical professionals will use such careful language when describing these procedures. If I go into the doctor and I find out I have a kidney stone, or if I have a tumor, if I have something foreign in my body that needs to be removed... I'm not looking for the doctor to use delicate language to describe the procedure. I want him to get that out of me. But the reason such delicate language is used here is because we know it's murder. We know it's the taking of human life. We have to be sensitive to that so as not to scare off the client. It's like calling adultery an affair. As if softening the language is going to somehow not destroy the lives of the kids or, or it's not going to be as painful for the spouse who got cheated on. Softening of language doesn't take away the sin. And, I, and I'm, I am aware that there are medical emergency situations for which abortion may seem like a logical decision. And I, I want... I want to be sensitive to that. I have, by God's grace, never had to experience that situation. I couldn't imagine being in that situation, having to make such a decision. I want to say I would lean hard on the grace of God in that moment, and I would trust Him with whatever is going on in our lives if we were faced with that sort of decision. But according to statistics, that is, that is very rare when looking at the bulk of abortions in America. Less than half of a percent of abortions in America, less than half of a percent of them are because of victim of rape or incest. And about 7% are actual physical health issues for the mother or for the child. So we're seeing a total of 7% of 
are what we would say might be extreme or emergency situations. And 93% of abortions are in the name of convenience. So whether it's an interference with education or a career or a desire to not be a single mother or a desire to stop having kids and not have any more children because you have too many, can't afford a baby, you're not ready to have kids, or for many it's no reason was given. They just wanted an abortion. 93% of abortions in America are out of convenience. A human being is killed for convenience sake. And out of those that would have an abortion in America, 54% of them profess to be a Catholic, a Protestant, or Evangelical specifically. 54% confess Christ as their Lord on the document before their abortion. How can we be Christian? How can we believe the gospel? How can we know this God and somehow reconcile murder? It's not just an embryo. It's not just a fetus. It's not a clump of cells. It's a human being. And many abortions happen after this human being is vital. Like they could live on the outside. We could keep them alive in the NICU. We know they're human. We know it's killing them. But maybe, maybe you can somehow still justify it scientifically and you can work yourself through that to make the decision logically because it's most convenient or it's best in your opinion. And so I also want to look at a, a logical standpoint. Probably the best apologetic I've seen or heard of for this uh, situation for the abortion uh, is considering just a few years down the road. The baby's born. We have a two-year-old. We have some two-year-olds here in a part of the crossing. Audrey, uh, Titus is about to be two. Timothy's about to be two. You can picture this hypothetical child. Now imagine, is there any situation, is there any scenario you can imagine that it, you would think it's justifiable to take the life of this hypothetical two-year-old? Can you think of any reason? Perhaps... This child is deformed and is unable to truly enjoy life as a normal functioning human being. Would it then be okay to kill this two-year-old? Or maybe this child, every day of its life, of his or her life, brings deep depression to his or her birth mother. Maybe every day of his existence causes pain to his birth mother because of some horrific incident of her past that conceived him. Is it then okay to take the life of this two-year-old? Or even if it were possible, some, some imaginary scenario where if we were to kill this child, it would bring back his mother who died in, in child labor. If that was somehow possible, would then it be justifiable to kill this two-year-old? I would hope and I would think that we would know it's never okay to kill a baby. It's never okay to kill a two-year-old. And somehow, still, we're totally fine if we just bring that back a little bit. If we go back in time a little and it's back in the womb, then it's okay. For those are the same reasons. 
There's this undoing. There's this cloud that we're in. It's this desensitized mindset that we have in a culture that's somehow accepted. And I'm, I, I believe and I hope that one day we'll look back on this horrific thing in American history and see it as it is. Murder. The way we look at the Rwandan genocide of a million killed. Or the way we look at the Holocaust where Hitler sentenced to death 11, as many as 11 million people legally, he sentenced them to death. And it's horrific. It's horrible. We'll go to monuments and we'll observe the piles of shoes and the stacked up dead bodies and we'll feel the weight of it. These are human beings killed in genocide. I hope for the day that we would stop abortion because we sense that since Roe versus Wade in 1973, the some 60 million babies killed would see it as it is, the greatest genocide in the history of the world. And that's just America. Because around the world, there's some 60 million babies aborted every year. It is a joy that rates of abortion are in decline and they have been for some time yet still we average around a million abortions every year in America and while many may feel the weight of guilt and shame surrounding this it's, it's my hope that we would all feel the weight of it because of our indifference because apathy makes us complicit and let's, let's not be complicit with this genocide where sin abounds, grace abounds. So it's okay to feel it and then to know that weight is lifted by the grace of God. Because Christ, knowing long before any of us were here that we would be faced with this, and He would do everything necessary to have it undone. And there's this work among us and the people of God, changed by the gospel, to see the world changed by the gospel. And so we stand together as the church and what we know is true, we find in the Word of God as true, and we proclaim it, we herald this good news that all would hear there's hope in a situation that seems utterly hopeless. Where we feel that we're apathetic, we're indifferent because we can't change it, we can't stop it. Instead, we, we have a voice and we make movement, we provoke the, the culture to change because of what we believe is true. And so let's go to the Word of God. In Genesis chapter 1, if you want to turn, it, turn to Genesis, you can. In Genesis chapter 1, we find this creation of all things. God created everything. He spoke it into existence as that, as that uh, article we read earlier, that excerpt said, He spoke all creation into existence. And for man, in Genesis 2, we see he sculpted man from the dust and he breathed life into him. We have the breath of God in us as our very life, unique among all creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 through 27. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures and according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. 
And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the beginning, God created all things. And when he created man, it was set apart. It was different. It was holiness. where we get this word, sanctity. It was different than everything else he created. So consider all of creation. All the animals and the, and the plants and how they grow and how they have life. And they're fascinating to us in every way. The, the, the majesty of a mountain, a mountain range, is wonderful. You see it in the distance. You, you can just see the earth coming to points and to climb mountains, to conquer them. It feels victorious to us. But God spoke them to existence with his words. And sunsets which are in fact the earth turning and the sun going down seemingly. But we see the beauty of color changing as it transitions to our atmosphere, to our eyes that God created for us to see and enjoy His creation. And that's just earth. So then consider space and its vastness. It's mysterious. It's deep. It's, we haven't even explored the cusp of it. I mean, we're, we're talking about something far beyond us. Galaxies, black holes, and stars bigger than we can imagine. Power in existence above us in ways that we can't even fathom. All of it spoken into existence by the creator of it all. And there is one thing in all of this. In all the majesty, and all the mystery, there's one thing in all of it that's set apart to bear the image of that creator. To be made in the likeness of that creator. And we have been given the honor of possessing the image of God. So humanity set apart from all else All creation has value. All creation belongs to Him and we should respect it and enjoy it except for maybe cats. But everything else, we honor it, we respect it, we enjoy it. And humans are at another level. Humans are set apart in a way that we stand alone supreme to have dominion over it all. We're equal to one another. We're equal to each other in value. So we should have that equal respect across the board. No matter who you are, what color your skin, how old you are, on what side of the womb you are. We should have that respect across the board for all humanity as we together rule over all creation. And above us is God, the creator of everything, who has given freely to us this opportunity to have dominion and enjoy his creation. Yet, we didn't accept that as enough, so we decided to be like God. And Adam and Eve sinned against God because they wanted more. And they thought if we disobey Him, they were deceived into believing if we disobey Him, we can be totally like Him. And so they ate of the fruit He told them not to eat of, and sin entered the world in the hearts of men, and has been passed down from father to son to daughter from, from then on. And we are broken and flawed, thinking of ourselves, trying to be better, working our, our methods, thinking we know more than the rest of the people, thinking we know how we're going to improve our lives. And we're scraping and trying to find the way to improve, to, to pile up everyone else so we can stand on top of them, to have more power, more money, more prestige, to outdo everyone else, looking down on everyone else so we can feel better about ourselves. This is sin gripping our hearts, deceiving us into believing that we can somehow be better than the rest of humanity. And with that same arrogance, even as believers, we look down on a culture that says it's okay to abort children. 
with arrogance. We're angry at people for their decisions. When truly we should be angry at sin in us and in them. Desperate to right that wrong, we come to this realization there's only one way to right that wrong. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So human to human, we are obliged to hold one another in high esteem, knowing that all people under this common grace for all people, Christian and non-Christian, all people are holy in God's sight because they're set apart. But they're not holy in this specific way that we can be in Christ. Because there's still the sin that remains that's broken us and kept us far from God. So though we'd still be above the rest of creation, we're far from God. We can be nowhere near Him. We fall short of His glory in our sin. So Christ has come to fill that gap. Not as a plan B, as a backup plan. He came knowing it would happen to restore all things, to show us this distinction between the evil that we think is good and what true goodness is in Christ. And so by the grace of God, we have faith in God through Jesus Christ. And we can in Him see ourselves restored. And then be joined together to see all things restored. None of this is because you deserve it. None of this is because somehow you're entitled to it. None of it is because you've convinced God that you're good enough. All of it is undeserved. All of it is by grace. And so we have no reason to look down with arrogance, boasting at our superiority to other human beings. Because it's just not the case. Yet together with all humanity, we can sense the connection we have as people. It's unlike the rest of creation. That's why the feeling we have, the sadness we have about that dead dog that's behind the back building. If you've not seen it, it's really sad and disgusting. There's a dead dog. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't looked today. Behind that building back there. And some of the kids were looking at it laughing, thinking it's hilarious. And I was like, it's a little bit morbid. You need to talk to your dad. But there's a sadness about it, right? Even if you don't like dogs, it's kind of sad. An animal's dead. But there's an altogether different, deep sadness. Like not just different, but mysteriously weighty grieving that we would experience if that dog were a child. It's just totally different. Everyone knows that. Everyone feels it. It even feels taboo to talk about a dead child behind the building. It just feels wrong. Because we know it's different. We're not like the rest of creation. We should honor, respect, and love, and care for all of creation. That's how God designed it. But humans are different. And if we would protest, if PETA would protest the killing of cows, and not protest the millions of abortions, how far off are we from how we were created? It doesn't even matter your worldview here. It's intrinsic. We know there's a difference. We're just somehow denying it. We're somehow suppressing it. I don't want you to leave here today not knowing abortion's murder. It's wrong. We need to be against it. If somehow politics or media has, has blinded you to the truth of this, has softened it in a way that makes it seem like it's not that big a deal, has somehow made it acceptable for someone to decide whether or not baby continues to live then we're far from where we need to be 
But it's not just in these broad brush ways that God created human beings in Adam and Eve and then it just passed down. Yes, He created reproduction and that's how it happens. You learn that in sixth grade, sex ed. But there is this way in which God is intimately involved in the creation of every single human being. We learn about that in a prayer written in Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. It says, For you, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when yet there were none of them. The things formed and unformed, seen and not seen, flesh and soul. So maybe scientifically we can't determine where life begins, yet we know it's in there somewhere. Biblically, we see the soul is given. There's there's this material state and there's this immaterial state. There's this this flesh that we see and feel and know, and there's this there's certainly more than mechanics, this spiritual state of us. God has given that to every human being in the womb from the moment of conception as He's knitting us together with detail. It says He created the days for you. So in the womb, when you were created as an individual by the God of all creation, He knew every day. It was written every day that you would live your life. And He was making you exactly how you needed to be for all that would be ahead of you in your life. Not only that, but He was forming those days before any of them were exactly for who He made you. He created the days for us. Knowing that we'd be together in this room. Knowing that you would do whatever you're doing in your life. You'd know the people you know. You'd have the influence you have. He's created you with the gifts, the talents, the abilities you have for purpose. So not only are we created in His image with value, but we're created with purpose. Not for any other reason than to bring Him glory by us enjoying the way He's created us. Yet in this understanding of dignity... We belittle ourselves. We're never good enough for ourselves. We don't look good enough. We don't think good enough. We're not funny enough. We're not smart enough. Whatever it might be. And we often think that about everyone else. Well, at least I'm not like him or her. And somehow these systems have formed where we hold colors of skin to be more valuable than other colors. Or certain mindsets to be more valuable than other mindsets. Or certain levels of education to be more valuable and other levels of education. How far off have we gotten from seeing that God has created every individual distinctly the way they are to bring Him glory. The offense we have against people is not against people ultimately. It's against the Creator of everyone. The problems you have with yourself are an offense to the Creator. We should enjoy all of life to the worship and glory of this God because He formed us. The parts that we see and the parts we don't see. He formed us. Our mind and body and our soul. He formed us. (laughs) 
So who is God? <clears throat> Finally to those questions. Last time I spoke, we did them at the beginning. Now they're at the end. Who is God? <clears throat> he's the creator of all things. Broadly and specifically, He's the creator of all things. The one who gives life, and He alone possesses the right to take life. He alone ascribes value to life, and He's done so with us and creating us in His image. So what has He done? He's created us and given us value by making us like Him. And He's made us individually with purpose. He's made us in a way that would be like Him, knowing that we would sin against Him. He's done everything necessary to bring us back to Him through Christ. In salvation, with faith, He's made it possible by His grace that not only would we be saved, but He join us together as His church, adopting us as spiritual orphans, establishing His church, fixing us together as many members to one body, that we would be the body of Christ, with Christ as our head, the Spirit indwelling, and we would go into this world and we provoke change by engaging a culture that's still very much lost, knowing in ourselves that we were once lost. We were once without a Savior. We were once enemies of God, but He has made us His children. And as we've seen this time and again in the book of Mark, as we've been working through Mark over the last several months, Christ has identified with the lowly and the vulnerable and the voiceless and the oppressed, and He's stood for them, and He's, he's, had, he's been that voice for them. And he's fought for what's right. He went up to those who no one would go up to. He heard the voice of those who no one else heard. He touched those who no one else would touch. And he, he did all of that because that is what he desires to see. The restoration of all things, all the broken. So as his body, we continue that work in the world that's very much filled with oppressed, oppressed people and none more oppressed than the voiceless, lifeless, aborted babies. So for the child in the womb, we stand for what's right. Not because of this, this moral obligation, as much as it is because of who we are. Because of what Christ has done. So, what do we do? We herald this good news to the broken, to the hopeless. We proclaim truth. As we live lives changed by the gospel, we're the hands and feet to the lost, to the culture that needs changing. We're dependent on the gospel. And what we do is totally dependent on what we believe. So your actions, if your actions aren't showing, I want to see abortion end, then it's likely you don't believe that. If your actions aren't showing, I want to see racism end, it's likely you don't really believe that. Because, necessarily, your actions follow your belief. And it cannot be that your belief follows your action. It just doesn't work that way. It can be that you're faking it. You're pretending to believe something. You're doing a lot of stuff. Trying to get everyone to believe it. Or maybe even trying to convince yourself you believe it. But unless we deal with our heart and our belief and we cling to the gospel then we won't change and we won't see the culture change. It works very much like it does for the individual. So we talk about salvation for the individual cannot be done through legalism. It cannot be done through the works. It cannot be done through following certain laws. Salvation happens by God changing us and then our obedience following. So if we make it about legalism, legalism says it's our strength and our morality that will change things. 
The culture will not be changed by legalism. And it cannot be done by antinomianism, which is the opposite. It's this, it's not really the opposite because it's really very similar, but it's the opposite mindset, this thinking that the rules don't matter, this thinking that because God's gracious, I don't have to do anything. He's, got, he's in control, so I don't have to do anything. It's this thought that says things are fine the way they are because of grace. When it's not fine, it's not okay. So we aren't to withdraw from culture with apathy and indifference, hoping that it works itself out. But we also aren't to force culture to conform to our way of thinking with arrogant demands as bigots. Rather, we engage culture as gospel-changed people. We speak truth with boldness and humility. And the omission makes us guilty. The commission makes us guilty. It was Martin Luther King who said, Martin Luther King Jr., I don't know if you ever reference his dad, but Martin Luther King Jr. who said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps perpetuate it or who perpetrate it. Ignorance is not an excuse. And if it was, you're no longer ignorant. I told you. And Scripture has told us long before I ever said it. Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. This word of wisdom, this command, rescue those who are being taken away to death. How applicable could it be? Rescue those who are being taken away to death, not just for them, but for the sake of those who do the killing. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Church, we are to rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So you can continue to say you didn't know. But God knows that it's on the heart of every human being who's ever lived. We know what murder is. And Jesus tells a similar story in Luke chapter 12, verse 47 through 48. In giving this idea of what exactly knowledge means to us. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready to act or act according to his will received a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what, was, what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Still a beating, but a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So in case you were thinking, your ignorance would save you. In case you were thinking, well, it is a big deal, but it's out of my reach. I can be indifferent. I want to just ruin that for you. There's no hope in that. God knows that you know. God knows that we have this weight of responsibility. And we know abortion's murder. And if we continue to live indifferent towards it, there is severe beating. This is, this is a parable. But there is punishment. There is discipline for those who remain in disobedience. 
Only let us rightly see that it's not against flesh and blood that we are waging war. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places because this is a sin issue. We deal with the sin by bringing the gospel to shine light. So in our culture, as these, these closing points and then one more passage of Scripture, in our culture, on this issue of life, it's all about the gospel. So we have humility. We have a humility that, that brings to bear this need for engaging the culture. That this humility in light of us realizing we're sinners in need of salvation. This humility because we can't do it without God. We're dependent on God. And we have this boldness that comes when we realize how big our God is. This boldness that would, would give us the insight to provoke the culture. The, the boldness. That, because we believe the gospel is true. We believe things can be restored. We believe God is at work to restore all things. So though we're humble. We're not timid. We're bold. In proclaiming what's true. And living change by the gospel. And then we live our lives shaped by this gospel. We live our lives knowing we're enabled by the gospel. So in moments of weakness. In moments where it feels overwhelming. If you're in here today feeling overwhelmed by shame because of your participation in an abortion. Or if you're feeling overwhelmed by shame because your, your omission, your difference towards abortion. The gospel brings hope. We're, we're shaped by it. We're changed by it. We have hope because of it. And there's freedom from that shame. Let it be lifted by the grace of God. In fact, to those who sin in a greater volume, to those who sin more, to those who are more guilty, grace is sweeter. And you can rest knowing that you're not condemned for this if you're in Christ. Hope and believe and trust in Him and find peace and joy that's satisfying more than anything in this world could ever satisfy because nothing can take it from you. We're secure in who we are in Christ. And as people change by the gospel, we engage the culture. Romans 10, 10 through 15. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And, when the, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is us. Changed by the gospel, being sent by the gospel to proclaim the gospel because the culture will be changed by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we, we may not, but we must grieve. So let us grieve. Let us mourn the deaths of many. Let us see that abortion is murder and let us hate it as we hate murder. 
Help us, Lord, as we so easily grow indifferent to things that don't directly apply to us, that we distance ourselves from things that don't seem to affect our everyday. Let us just, even if it's just for right now, draw near to you. That it wouldn't be we're moved by emotion for a, a brief amount of time, but that we'd be brought near to you by the gospel, changed by you by the gospel, and live lives changed by the gospel. That we would see all of life has value. All human life is a deserving of dignity because we are image bearers. And that we'd live our lives changed, not just against abortion, but against every form of sin that would attack the dignity of human life. And all of this is made possible by your grace and by your love. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for the gospel that it has done a work in us and continues to do a work in us. And I lift up to you any soul in here that is still far from you indulging in sin. And I pray, God, that you would do a work of salvation even now. And we'd have our eyes open and our ears open. And I pray that with the same humble heart, with the same boldness that I want to address and engage our culture. Make us a church that makes a difference, not because of our morality or our rule following, but because of our belief in the only hope, Jesus Christ. Amen.